Mike was very sensitive, and he's just getting used to it. I'll talk quietly. Okay. <laughs> well, good afternoon, mothers and fathers. If you're not mothers yet, you will be again here for about the next four days, they say. It's supposed to rain a bunch and then snow for three more days, so we're not done with it yet. <clears throat> I do think that these big storms going on to the West Coast, which we they spill over here is what happens. <clears throat> Most of our weather comes from down around the L.A. area, uh, traditionally from the Southwest. So if they're getting it, then it spills over. It's been pretty bad, really. Uh, Mammoth Mountain there in Southern California, south of Pikes, uh, not Pikes Peak, uh, Mount Whitney, is uh, shut down. They got 13 feet of snow, and it was so much the ski resort couldn't even handle it. And we got some spillover, but I do believe that this is part of the weather wars that are going on, that it's fabricated by man through Satan, Prince of the Power of the Air, and they do have enough control to cause these things to happen. Uh, we got a lot of drought, uh, which has been increasing, and now we're getting rain on top of it, and uh, terrible mudslides as well in some areas of California. So it's all just a part of this end-time thing that's coming upon the nation to help weaken it and bring it down. <coughs> At the same time, they're having devastating tornadoes back in the southeast and uh, pretty bad winter up north and northeast as well. So I guess summer will come, but uh, we may have to go through some more of this. We've been going through uh, various chapters of Isaiah here about God's anger and frustration with and uh, punishment upon various peoples and nations in this whole section of Isaiah. And uh, I had something else in mind, but it ties in with something else I want to get to a little later. So I thought we'd go back and finish up this section of Isaiah today. It has a change of, a complete change of subject really in chapter 36. And we're in 34 at the moment. <clears throat> so let's finish this up, and then we'll get to something else next week. Now, instead of being uh, a chapter about a specific area or a specific nation, uh, here he addresses all the nations of the world sort of uh, does a summary of what he's been doing and includes those that might not have been included individually, although he does get down to someone specific here before this chapter is over, which is also very, very important who, who he singles out here. But at the beginning, chapter 34, he says, Come near, you nations, to hear. Uh, get up close here and listen to what I'm about to say. This isn't to go over your heads. This isn't to be heard off in the distance. This is something you need to be front and center to hear. Hearken, you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world, and all things that come forth of it. So this is an address to every human being on earth. 
here at the end time because these are end time prophecies. Now, will they listen? No, they will not. Uh, they're not going to read Isaiah 34, 1 and say, oh, that means me, I guess I better listen to what this says. They won't. And then when God even sends the end time remnant and the speakers there to present it to them city by city by city around the world for three and a half years, they still will not listen. That's how stubborn man is. And that's why God goes through this thing over and over and over. If you pick up the Bible and read for very long, you're going to hear stuff like we're reading right now. Because God emphasizes it time after time, and people won't listen. They just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear and run over their heads. For the indignation of the eternal is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies, and he has utterly destroyed them. He has delivered them to the slaughter. Now that's put in past tense, but it means he's about to, and it is going to happen. It's just as well said future or past tense. It's something that is going to happen and will ultimately become past tense. But I think part of the emphasis there is that it isn't very long until it happens once these prophecies begin to be fulfilled. Now, people can read this and say, well, that's been there for two or three or four thousand years. What does that have to do with me? But what they're failing to see is that all through these prophecies, it says in the latter days or at the end of times, which we clearly are in now. So even though it may have been here, which is a tribute to God who knew long, long, long ago exactly what was going to happen and wrote it down by some of these ancient prophets so that it would apply to today. And now the time has come that it does apply. So if you never listened before over the hundreds, thousands of years, you better listen now because it's about to come down on you. Tell him that to the whole earth. And there are many other places, even there in Haggai, where it's speaking specifically of the two witnesses. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. So it's the same type of context, same type of words that he says there, and many other places as well. Their slain also shall be cast out, and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. That's speaking of all nations and all peoples. Uh, I think it is said by Daniel very clearly that only about 100 million will survive what is about to be unleashed upon us. Already is being unleashed, but it's getting stronger by the day. Uh, more and more people are beginning to die from the effects of the vaccinations. And they're kind of hiding that, but it's happening more and more. People in, I, I saw something about 1,150 athletes in their prime have just fallen over and died on the field, soccer, football, baseball, whatever. The effect <clears throat> is just now beginning to really hit. And all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved, 
and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Even the skies are going to reflect this. And he says the day of the Lord will be a day of darkness and earthquakes and thunder and so on. So God is going to do some magnificent, fearful things here at the end. Host of heaven dissolved, that doesn't mean that his throne and the angels will be dissolved. But Satan still goes before the throne of God daily to accuse you and me, primarily those who are true Christians. He doesn't need to accuse the Presbyterians and Baptists and all of those people because he's got them in the palm of his hand. They're not following any of his edicts, basically. So this is referring to those who have been called out and taught the truth. They're the ones Satan is most upset with because he knows that they're candidates for the 144,000 to be the bride of Christ and sit at the throne of God forever and ever. And he hates that concept more than anything because that's where he wanted to be. Not only there, but the one in charge. And we see in uh, Revelation 11 that he's going to be cast down and never allowed to go before the throne of God again. So when it talks about the heavens and the earth and everything involved, this is far-reaching. Satan and his demons will not be allowed before the throne of God anymore. And it says there in Revelation 11, as soon as he is cast down, he comes after who? The church. Uh, that's the one he is mainly concerned about. He's got the rest of the world pretty well deceived. There's just a few that aren't. And they are his target. So, this includes something bigger than just the nations of the earth, because he includes even those areas where God's enemies are that are beyond our grasp and understanding and ability to travel. Uh, their host shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Sharpened, wetted, bathed, prepared in heaven. And that's where this destruction is coming from, is from God in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idumea and upon the people of my curse to judgment. So here he draws it down from all the nations of the earth to make a specific point of Idumea, which was one of the cities in Esau or Edom. Uh, you know from the book of Obadiah that Edom still has, or Esau's descendants, still have a great hatred for Jacob's children. And it makes it very clear there that uh, Esau or Edom will be part of dragging us down to captivity, that they would be in the high places financially in the world, which they are, and that they would use their wealth and power to help drag Jacob down and defeat him finally. Uh, Esau couldn't kill Jacob when they were still human brothers. But their descendants have been at odds ever since. And those who say they are Jews and are not are Edomites, are descendants of Esau. Not all of them, but a great 
number of them are. And they are behind a lot of the trouble that Jacob is beginning to have. The time of Jacob's trouble, it talks about in one chapter, I think it's here in Isaiah, in fact, <coughs> is coming in which uh, Esau and Edom will finally triumph over Israel. And God says there in Obadiah that they will gloat over it, but they'll be so happy dancing in the streets because they finally got rid of Jacob. And then God says, because you do this, it will come back upon you. And then he explains there in Obadiah what he will do to Edom. And he covers it here in chapter 34 as well. Uh, there are quite a few other places that he talks about it, but... Uh, this is an important one right here. These uh, Zionists, many of them, are Edomites. And you have a controversy right now between a lot of the alternate media and those who say they are Jews in Israel who are actually, many of them, Edomites. And there are more of them in New York and Washington and L.A. and Miami than there are over there by far. And they are destroying this nation from the inside out. A lot of them are in the government. <clears throat> so God is going to punish Edomia or Edom. The sword of the eternal is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. If you've done much butchering, you know that if you're using a knife or some instrument to cut with, it gets fat all over it uh, because the fat will cling to the metal. And that's what he's talking about here. He's going to do an awful lot of swinging of the sword and it'll have the fat of the people on it. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a, Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Idumea. So he's not talking about actual uh, lambs and goats here, except that they are personified, uh, the people are, as animals, or uh, animals for the slaughter, more specifically, uh, it's people that he's upset with, not goats and lambs, it's the people. He just uses that as an analogy uh, that it's the people's fat that's going to be sliced to pieces. And the unicorn shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. Now, <clears throat> Esau was Jacob's brother, as we know, and Jacob was the father of all the tribes of Israel, and they lived fairly near each other. Uh, Jacob was afraid of Esau, and when he heard Esau was coming, he got afraid and sent gifts and so on. So they weren't separated by a thousand miles. They were living fairly close together here in this area. And I do believe that a lot of the people in Utah today are descendants of uh, Esau, of Ammon, and uh, Moab uh, from the two daughters of Lot, who were related to Abraham. So, this is going to happen, I think, a lot of it very close here. Now, some of it will not be that, because these people of Esau, as I said, are scattered 
through the nations of America and Israel and Europe, and they are overseeing our demise. Some of them are going to be in Davos, Switzerland this coming week. A lot of them at that meeting where they're going to plan our final demise and how they're going to go about it through this next year. Uh, it's a planning place is what it is with all those who are enemies of America and uh, a lot of so-called Jews or Edomites will be there to help make the plan. I expect things to escalate this year because they've done an awful lot in the last two or three years and it's escalated lately. They're destroying the food. They're destroying a lot of things. Uh, my son and I were in Costco in uh, Colorado Springs a few days ago and there wasn't an egg in the place. Can't get eggs. Uh, now there's still some here. There's still some there. But it's getting to the point they're hard to find. I'm thinking about getting a few more chickens, <laughs> if you can still get them. Uh, they've killed so many chickens and turkeys and all, but it's getting hard to get. And now Bill Gates has says that they're going to put that mRNA vaccine material in the animals. So when you buy food at a grocery store, if you can still get beef or chicken or whatever, it's going to have the vaccine in it because they want to be sure you get vaccinated. When is that going to start? I don't know. But it would behoove us to either have food prepared ahead uh, or to be raising it so that they don't inoculate that which you are eating. I don't want that vaccine. I've seen too much come from it that's evil. And pretty soon it'll be in your food. I, I think that can be guaranteed because... Bill Gates and his cronies are in a position to do it. And it will be done. Then what are you going to do? I think we better be prepared. But a lot of this slaughter that he's talking about here, I think, is going to happen locally among a lot of the Mormons. Because we have to have this land to build Jerusalem and build the temple and the resources that are here in order to do it, and those people are going to have to be gone. And they still live around the original promised land, which is here. The unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls, uh, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. There's going to arise a bigger controversy than now is. There is a controversy in the world about what they call the Zion in Jerusalem. And people are aligned with the Jews there, and there are people who are aligned against them. So there's a controversy even there between those who say they are Jews and are not, and the world who thinks they are. And then there's going to be a great controversy over the true Zion because the Mormons believe this Zion here is the true Zion as well. It took uh, Brigham Young a while to grasp that. He called it not Zion for some years uh, because he didn't want to accept that. And then he changed and called it the true Zion at some point. I don't know what year. <coughs> 
But the Mormons generally think that the Zion part here is the true Zion. And I do too. There's going to become, come to be a controversy over it. And when God starts talking about this destruction that's coming on people, it is the time when he settles the controversy over Zion and then gives it to his church, his people, his remnant, and the others are put out, and he has a wall of fire around it and a cover over it. He says very clearly that's what he's going to do. So there's some people around that have to go away in order to do what needs to be done. The U.S. government being part of it, because they control, the BLM does, they control the area of Jerusalem, and the government also controls Zion. Uh, you can't do anything there until the controversy that will come up is settled. And God says, I am going to settle it. I will take care of it. His vengeance in the year of recompenses, he's going to recompense the evil and those who have done evil uh, against Zion. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. Sounds a little like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to take care of some of these things in a very awesome way. <clears throat> it shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now, that's pretty strong language, and it doesn't include the whole of the promised land, if you will. There may be certain areas that God is going to make desolate, and they'll be there as a reminder through the generations. That's also said about uh, Babylon, that he will make it desolate like this, and that it will stay that way. Now, if Babylon is America, then he's not talking about the whole thing because this is, was expanded to be the promised land was basically all of North America. And it's not going to lie desolate. But I would not be surprised if, let's say, Washington, D.C. and New York City, because it does mention an island, I think, in one of those passages uh, that will be made desolate and be there is an always reminder of what happened. Now, he made that proclamation about Jerusalem as well, didn't he? He said it would remain desolate for many generations. He didn't say forever, but many generations. That's never happened in the Middle East to that Jerusalem. But it's happened to the one here because nobody lives there and nobody has lived there and you can't find any house remains there. Uh, it's been generations since people lived there. Now, God is going to open it up again and allow people to live there when the temple and Jerusalem are being built, but not until. And there may be a city of uh, Esau that he does this too. And he connects it down here with the wilderness. We'll see that here in a few minutes. So instead of people being there, the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it, 
and he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. So birds, maybe some small animals, uh, would live there, but not people. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all her princes shall be nothing. He's going to destroy. Thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof, and it shall be an habitation of dragons and a court for owls. Now that's kind of what Jerusalem has been. I've worked there on that site a lot. And I saw dragons, lizards, and I saw birds, the occasional coyote wandering through. But that's it. And this is going to be the same way. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyrs shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. Now, I submit that the thorns and the nettles and the things that we are dealing with today, when God revitalizes the wilderness and the desert, he's going to take those things away. But in this area of Esau that he's talking about, wherever it might be and however big it may be, he says thorns and nettles and brambles will be there, remain there, come up there. So it'll be an inhospitable area that no one would want to go to. There shall the great owl make her nest, and lay, and hatch, and gather under her shadow. There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. Doesn't sound like a good place to be anymore. Seek you out of the book of the eternal and read. So he says, I'm making this pronouncement. Now you need to find the Bible and read what it says. No one of these shall fail, none shall want her mate, from my mouth it has commanded, and his spirit it has gathered them. So, where are we reading this? In his book. It's here for anybody who will hear and listen in the world, and particularly among Esau and Edom. Now, if you read Hebrews 12, you'll find that Esau tried to repent. He sought it carefully with tears, but he could not get rid of the hate and bitterness and anger that burned within him because Jacob had mistreated him. Jacob did wrong as well. He lied, he stole. Now, God had intended, and he said so, to give the birthright to Jacob. Jacob didn't need to take it into his own hands, but he did. Now, had he gone ahead and not lied and stolen and deceived his own father and so on, he would have gotten the birthright and it would have been handed to him at some point, and Esau would not have been so angry. But they brought this upon themselves, well, both of them did, really. But God forgave Jacob because he was obedient to God most of the time and repented of his sins. Esau would not forgive, would not repent. And even though he tried hard, he couldn't change his mind. 
And God warns us about that there in Hebrews 12. So he says, read, no one of these shall fail. This prophecy here that he tells you about to the world and to Esau is going to happen. It won't fail. None shall want her mate, these birds and animals that move in there. For my mouth uh, it has commanded, and his spirit it has gathered them. So God is going to gather these birds and animals to the area that's going to be made desolate and full of thorns and briars. And he has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it unto them by line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation shall they dwell therein. So he says, no people is going to be these birds and animals that will dwell there, and no one else from generation to generation. So God is going to make it clear, and it will remain clear through the generations that you don't go the way of Esau. Just as he warns us in Hebrews 12, don't be like Esau. Don't go there. Don't become bitter. Don't become angry. Don't get frustrated. Be patient. If you have evil in your heart and mind, purge it out. Get rid of it. Don't carry grudges anywhere at any time. God does not carry grudges, and we shouldn't either. He says not to let the sun go down on our wrath. Okay, somebody misused you, abused you. You're going to hang on to that for a month? A year, 40 years, Esau did. And God tells us, get rid of it before the sun goes down. There isn't any offense, there isn't anything anybody could say or do that's worth you upsetting your life and your mind and your emotions and your future over. People do offend, don't they? We all do, we seem to be unable not to at one time or another. But God forgives us. You know, he said he gives us, there in the book of Lamentations, a new start every morning. You get up, out of bed, and God says you have a clean slate. In his mind, what happened yesterday or the day before is gone. And you have a fresh start. Now, that's a beautiful concept, isn't it? That God doesn't hold yesterday's sin against you. His Son's sacrifice, His blood, is there for us at all times. And if we repent and ask for forgiveness, God gives it, and that's the end of it. Now, if we don't, we may have to deal with it over and over and over again, just as Esau did. And God did not put his forgiveness on Esau because he would never turn loose of that which bothered him. We have to turn it loose. Don't hold it. We're repentant. God turns it loose. It's gone. Because our sins will never again be mentioned to us. Isn't that kind of a nice deal? When the first resurrection comes, you'll just rise whether you're alive or dead, out of the grave, you'll rise to meet Christ in the air, and you won't have to go before the judgment seat. The very fact that you were resurrected and changed 
means that you were forgiven. And he's not going to sit down and go through the list of your sins with you. That'll be the last thing on his mind and yours too. Wouldn't that be a downer? You get resurrected to glory and Christ says, all right, let's sit down and discuss your sins. Now, that isn't when our judgment comes. Our judgment comes now. Now is a day of salvation. And he is judging us based on how we love, how we forgive, how we seek him today. And then if he does change us in the spirit when he comes, that's the answer. Nothing negative will be laid to us ever again. The judgment is over our physical life. And it will be for those in the millennium and the great white throne judgment after who have not had a real chance. They'll be given it. And they'll be judged for that. When Christ comes back to judge a hundred million, as Daniel put it, those will be people who survived this Holocaust we're talking about today living physically into the millennium. <coughs> so, he's going to begin, as they live on humanly, he'll, judge, he'll teach them the truth, and then he'll judge them according to whether they follow his way or not. So, we are judged as we live a human life. At the end of that human life, the judgment's complete. He's not going to resurrect people and separate them sheep and goats like that. He does that as we live and work and obey or disobey. We get separated into which category over a period of time. And then a judgment is made. So the old Protestant view that actually is based in Scripture, if you don't take the context and the other Scriptures, almost indicates that this is a judgment where sheep, goat, sheep, sheep, goat, 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 uh, goes on. It's not like that. He is separating right now, you and me, out as either a sheep or a goat. And by the time the resurrection comes, whether we're dead or alive, that decision will have been made. And the separation will then occur. You'll either be resurrected or you won't. Or come up in the third for the lake of fire. Anyway, he divides it, and those animals and birds will keep it from generation to generation. Now, he ties that together with a change that is coming. He's saying, those who have disobeyed me are not going to be on the land, and the birds and the beasts will take over that. But those who will obey me have something different coming. And now he deals with that in chapter 35. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. Now that tells me that these areas are close together. You have that area that's been turned over, not to people, but to wildlife. And then in the desert, in the wilderness, near there, it shall be glad for them. Them is who? Those beasts, those animals, those birds, who are occupying the land adjacent. They'll be happy for it. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. 
Even uh, the glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the eternal, eternal and the excellency of our God. Since, so instead of the desert and wilderness that we now have, and it's filled with brambles and foxtails and goat heads and tumbleweeds and all these things, it's going to be changed, whereas the area that represents the Gentile, the Edomian, or the Edomite, is going to continue to have brambles and briars, and maybe some added to it for that matter. But the place where God's people are is going to be turned the other direction. They'll see the glory of the eternal and the excellency of our God. He says, strengthen you the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Where do you see that? Elsewhere in the Bible. An example that comes to mind to me is Hebrews 12. He's telling us here not to be like Esau, and we're talking about the land of Esau back here and the land of Israel. Don't be like Esau, and if you're rebuked, as Esau was, you don't react the way he reacted. Here's how we are to react. Uh, it talks about how our parents uh, used to chasten us for their own pleasure. Uh, verse 10, but he for our prophet, that we might be partakers of his holiness. He straightens us out so that we might become holy, which we've not been. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. And what the church has gone through since basically 1986, and even a little bit before, has not been joyous. It's been confusing and frustrating, upside down, people departing left and right, dying spiritually, diseased spiritually, uh, not knowing what to do or where to go. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. Those who pay attention and are corrected and come to have the right attitude. Well, what was our attitude before? Self-righteousness, thinking we had need of nothing, as Revelation 3 says. We're Philadelphians, we're okay. And he says the very attitude of self-righteousness that is there is what creates a Laodicea. So he spewed us from his mouth. And we've been chastened, split apart. So then what are you to do? You're to look at that chastening and be thankful. How many of us, I wonder, or how often have we, gotten on our knees and thanked God for spewing the church out? I wonder how many have actually done that. Thank you, Father, for having torn us apart and into little pieces and destroying the church. We should be thankful for that. Why? Because it woke us up, hopefully... And had us begin to seek God with zealousness and humility instead of self-righteousness and I'm a-okay. I got my ticket punched to the place of safety and everything's good with me. So instead of being exercised by the chastening, most have simply moved over with their little 
clot of vomit that they're in, and says, we're the Philadelphians. The rest of you are Laodiceans, but we're the Philadelphians. We are still okay and have need of nothing. If you'll come worship with us, your place of safety is still guaranteed. That's what they're all saying, nearly. I don't care which group you go to, living, uh, I can't even remember the names of them now, they're leaving my mind, uh, Philadelphia, uh, United, they're all saying that. We're the Philadelphians, the others are Laodiceans, and the little groups as well. No. I got spewed, didn't I? Aren't we just a little clot of vomit out here? That's all we are. So he tells us, repent. Turn to God with humility and meekness and love and get over being self-righteous. And if we do, if we overcome, he says, he will bless us. But if you continue on with the same mindset you had before you were paddled, what good did it do? Didn't do a bit of good. It's time to repent of what we were and not be that way anymore. Have we? Well, we've been going through it now since before 1986, but really since 86 in earnest, when Herbert Armstrong died. And they brought in all kinds of false doctrine and everything else, but those who kept the same doctrine still thought they were A-OK. It wasn't me that was the problem, it was you guys. Now, is that fair? Are you really looking at yourself honestly if you say it was all somebody else's fault? Weren't we all self-righteous? Didn't we all think we had it made pretty much? Didn't we think we had everything we needed? Didn't we get slack and unzealous in our approach to God? And on and on and on it goes. I did. I was in that mindset, didn't know it, but I was. So what am I today? What are you? I hope I'm a repenting Laodicean who will become a Philadelphian someday and achieve that protection that God says he will give to Philadelphia. The people who have not recognized that they're not Philadelphia that they were laid a sin is the reason they were among the vomit, aren't going to repent. That's why 90%, when God stirs the remnant to come, 90% are going to say, I'm still a Philadelphian, I'm okay. I don't need to go there. I don't need to do that. They won't repent. That's sad. But 10% will have made the transition and gotten rid of their self-righteousness and be humble and meek and ready to work with God and for God. And they will be used to build Jerusalem and the temple and be a light to the rest of the world when the time comes. That's the ones. No one else. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It has been grievous, hasn't it? 
I can remember so well when you go to the Feast of Tabernacles and everybody was all happiness and joy and thousands of people there. We had all those fine, beautiful campuses. Some of the finest homes that have ever been built on this earth, Ambassador College owned. Some of the very finest. I'm not saying the very largest. They were pretty large. They were bigger than today's McMansions, most of them. But the woods and the quality of the materials that went into those buildings was by far and above some of the finest homes anywhere on earth. And I've been in some pretty nice ones. The Vanderbilt Mansion back in Carolinas and different ones here and there. And Ambassador College had finer buildings than that. By far. Those people who owned those may have been millionaires then, but that money would be billionaires today. And some of the things that they used to construct those buildings simply aren't available anymore. Those fine woods. They're gone. <clears throat> God gave us an incredible amount of wealth and beauty. And we got self-righteous about it. And he spewed us out and we became nothing. To the world, to God, and to ourselves. So here we sit, a little tiny gathering of what I hope is reforming Laodiceans. Getting over it. Getting past it. Worshiping God with our whole heart. That's what we're here to do. To serve Him and to serve each other. That is the love of God. Is serving each other. With His love. Not just human sympathy, but by His Spirit being moved to do service to others as Christ did when He was here. So he tells us here, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the eternal. And then he says, be very careful you don't get a root of bitterness like Esau did. So we flip back here to Isaiah and we see the evilness of Esau and what God is going to do to Esau. And he tells us in the same words, and really, Paul, if he wrote Hebrews, is just quoting from Isaiah 34, or 35. Notice here it says, Strengthen you the weak knees and confirm the feeble knees. That's exactly what we just read from Paul. You're chastened, which we have been. Be strengthened by it. Don't be discouraged. Don't be frustrated by it. Don't be confused by it. Take it and repent. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Read verse 4. Remember verse 4. It sounds just like Isaiah 7. Don't be afraid of the beast power that's coming. Fear me, not it. He's speaking directly to the church there, to Zion, and so on, when he says that. 
And he says the same, same thing in Zephaniah. Fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. So he says the same thing here. But that's the same thing Paul said in Hebrews 12 in the New Testament. So we're not to fear Davos, Switzerland, and the WEC, and all those people. What's to fear? God says He will take care of us. So we don't have to worry about it. You don't have to watch too much of what's going on in the world to get a pretty good idea of what's happening. But you don't need to know every detail of it, much of which frightens you to death, because it's scary stuff. Well, don't worry about it. And don't focus on it, because focusing on it, then you start getting fearful. Now, God does not like us to be fearful. That's all through the Bible. Fear not. Don't be fearful. Trust me. That's what the basis of faith is, is trusting God. When he said here in verse 4, be strong and fear not, he meant it. Have living faith and trust in the living God that he will save you. Will he find faith on earth? He better find a little bit of it somewhere. And it needs to be with us and others. Be strong, fear not. Your God will come with vengeance. He said it right here in this chapter. Even God with a recompense. He'll recompense the heathen for their works, and He'll recompense those who do not repent for their works. He will come and save you. <clears throat> then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then shall the lame man leap as a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Now, when he told us in Micah 4 to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, and there he would deliver us, he promised that, and he said he would and he will. Now, in some ways, we already are delivered. You don't want to be in New York City or Chicago or Houston or Atlanta today. You just don't want to be there. Because it's getting worse and worse day by day by day. And if you're in a woke Democrat city especially, it's getting worse far faster. And murder and mayhem is at the very corner. Mall of America in Minneapolis. The security guard approached someone who had a Jesus Save shirt on, told him to take it off. If you claim to be a Christian or worship Jesus, they're starting to tell you, take it off or else. <coughs> and yet all around in the mall were Muslims wearing burqas. That was okay. You can worship Muhammad. You can be a Muslim. But don't you dare be a Christian. I never thought, apart from the Bible, that I would ever see the day in the United States of America where you would be accosted and told, get off your Jesus shirt. But it's here. This is not the America I grew up in. Not at all. 
we still considered ourselves Christian back then. And admittedly so. And the government said so. But not anymore. You're hated if you're a Christian. Especially if you're a white male Christian. You can be gender 43 and it's okay. Oh my. But he told us if we came out of the cities and into the wilderness, he would deliver us. This is still in the context, brethren, of the vengeance of the Lord. This is not talking about the millennium. We used to read it it in Isaiah 11 at the feast and say this is talking about the millennium. And indeed it is, because these conditions will also be there. But this is talking about the time when God's vengeance is starting and when he is still punishing and when there is still someone around to be afraid of. Fear not. Fear not what? In the millennium, you don't got to fear anything. Devil's gone. Man's society's gone. Christ is ruling. There's nothing to be afraid of then. But this is still talking about this end time age. When there is still something to fear. And he says, don't. Okay? This isn't the millennium. This is now. It's going to happen when those signs and wonders of Zechariah 3 start, and people who are blind will see, and the deaf will hear, and the lame will walk. And that's what's going to stir people to come to build the temple. Because God is going to do signs and wonders and miracles. And it'll be in the wilderness, in the desert, where it happens. It's not going to be in some wonderful, fertile place. That's the contrast. That's what helps prove it's from God. Oh, so the flowers come up in the Willamette Valley. So the apples bloom and the peaches. They do that every year already. No, he's talking about the desert blooming as a rose. And that is quite a contrast over what has been. That's why he called us to the desert and the wilderness. is to show his might and his power, and his love. The lame man will leap as a heart, the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Not just spiritual streams, but physical as well. Both will happen. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Where do the dragons dwell today? Look around here in the desert, out in the bare ground, under the rocks. Then that becomes grass. Reeds and rushes, things that grow near water. And then highways shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. So God's going to make it where the unclean can't come in, like it'll be in the kingdom later on. A wall of fire around it and a cover over it. And the wicked cannot come through. Only those who are righteous. But it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. <laughs> a man who's traveling 
If he's a fool, it's not going to be allowed in. A fool is one who's being disobedient and doing his own thing, not doing the thing of things of God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the eternal. Someone who doesn't fear God is a fool. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. Your sheep, your goats, your chickens will be safe. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. God will allow those who do repent and overcome and grow and repent of Laodiceanism and become Philadelphians. I'm here to say Philadelphia does not yet exist. You have Sardis worldwide which died, and a few names remain from Sardis that are still alive. And then you have the majority, 99%, whatever, who were Laodiceans and got spewed. And as they repent, they're going to come together as a remnant and form Philadelphia and be protected from all the things that are coming. Philadelphia is yet future. It hasn't even happened yet. Because the Philadelphians are being prepared right now through repentance. And the ransomed, ransomed of the eternal shall return. And come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We are still in a world that is full of sorrow and sighing. We ourselves are full of sorrow and sighing. There is a place in Isaiah that says that those will be redeemed who sigh and cry for the iniquity that is going on in our nation today and for the world as well. They sigh and cry over it. It's a source of almost constant frustration when we see the things that are happening in what used to be a pretty decent place to live. And every day it gets worse and worse and worse. And I sigh and cry for the way things were even when I was a kid. They weren't perfect by any means, but they were a whole lot better than they are today. And that sighing and sorrow will flee away because God will protect and they will remain faithful and be blessed until the resurrection and chained or changed and then There'll be no more sorrow or tears or crying forevermore. But once you reach this place where you've been ransomed from this world as a human and used as a light to the world, you're not going to go back into bad conditions ever again. It'll be upward and onward from then on. Excuse me. That covers this section. So we'll stop there, but There's a lot of evil coming (coughs) upon this world, and there is an opportunity for a few to repent, to turn to God with their whole heart, not to fear this world and Satan, but to fear God, who holds the keys to life and death. And he said, he will save us. That's a promise. You can count on it. So don't fear, trust.